You don't know Big Zhao, said Yao Shi. Even father couldn't do anything with him, let alone Jun. When he was young, he went with grandfather on three or four of his campaigns, and once saved his life by pulling him from under a heap of corpses and carrying him to safety on his back. He went hungry himself and stole things for his master to eat. And once, when he had managed to get half a cupful of water, he gave it to his master and drank horse's urine himself. Because of these one or two acts of heroism, he was always given special treatment during grandfather's lifetime. So naturally, we don't like to upset him now. Jorei's wife, you're right, she was just speaking to Wang Xifeng shortly before, and now she's back again. And as she's coming in, she's waved round to a different door by one of the one of uh, Wang Xifeng's maids. Uh, and so she kind of tiptoes round and then finds there uh, a wet nurse uh, who's currently kind of patting a baby to sleep. And she asks, Jorei's wife asks, is Wang Xifeng taking a nap? Because, you know, I've got something to give her, so you better wake her up if she is. And the, yeah, the, the wet nurse just, she purses her lips and shakes her head. As if to say, you, you kind of don't want to go there. Um, you don't want to do that. Uh, and then she, she hears faint laughter from within. Uh, and we realize that Wang Shifeng is not sleeping. Instead, she and Jalian are in there having sex. And so again, like... I, I think one of the things that's been kind of interesting to me about this novel is that the author doesn't really shy away from the subject. I think that perhaps sometimes writing about it um, is prescribed to an extent by contemporary ideas, perhaps of decency. Um, so it's not always extremely direct. It's sometimes more just alluded to. But, you know, if you want to give as full a description as possible of what this household is like, of course there are going to be there are going to be people having sex and they're going to dealing with this query or dealing with that person or ordering new bolts of cloth or, you know, sending off a message there. And so, you know, she's got to get it when she can. Uh, she's got to, you know, and, and there's a, I guess one thing that's worth noting as well is that this is a, you know, showing a relatively happy and peaceable relationship between Jialian uh, and Wang Xifeng, who I believe at this point are relatively newly married. And sadly, I don't think their marriage follows the happiest right. path as the story progresses. We've already uh, read the, um, mm. the ominous poem in chapter five, and we heard the, uh, the somber song. Mm. And so we have, we have a sense that something untoward is going to happen. Yeah, I was really impressed with the, uh, the realism of this scene. At the same time that even this small, very uh, plausible uh, occurrence, it reminded me of a dream where often in dreams there are sexual phenomena, um, but they aren't directly represented. And maybe you just, as the dreamer, you sense... Yeah, uh, uh, and in this case, that's completely right. We hear a faint laughter from inside. You can kind of perceive the, the corners of something, but you don't actually see the thing itself necessarily. So all indirect phenomena. Yeah. Yep. And so at this moment, uh, the maid patience mm -hmm. takes four flowers and two are said to, to be delivered to uh, Jarong's wife uh, over in the Ning household. And I think the implication there, although it's not explicitly spelled out, is that patience herself gets one flower. I see. I see. Which would make sense. I believe um, she got 
one song, did she not? Because there are, there, again, there's 12 flowers, there's 12 beauties uh, of, of Jin yep. Ling. Uh, there's, there's also 12 ingredients in yeah. uh, Bao Chai's. Um, this is why my like inner cosmologist is uh, uh, at full alert in mm -hmm. this chapter. Um, because we, we do really see a an abundance of, of seemingly meaningful symbols mm -hmm. uh, aligning themselves as if uh, constellations. And so at, after coming back from uh, Wang Shifeng's house, this is when Jore's wife runs into her mm -hmm. daughter, who, as we mentioned before, uh, is married to Lung Zixing, uh, Jia Yutun's friend from yeah. chapter two. Uh, and apparently Lung Zixing, he wasn't entirely, we knew him as the, the Lung Yan, the, the cold, uh, the dispassionate observer. But apparently he's not always dispassionate because he got too drunk and he ran into trouble with the law. And now he needs um, Shi Feng and potentially Lady Wang to uh, intervene on his behalf or else he's going to be deported to the south. Yeah, he needs his friends in high places to, uh, to help out. Exactly. And so this scene is very is very brief. Um, there's some indication that uh, Jory's wife's daughter is dressed in her mm -hmm. best dress, which is again an indication of status, where you only really have maybe one really good dress, uh, and she was wearing it on this occasion so that she could uh, plead her case um, more successfully. Yep. And so finally, the last uh, beauty to receive a flower. Is of course, you know, the flower herself, uh, yeah. Lin Daiyu, who is currently with yep. Bao Yu, naturally. Um, they're living with grandmother Jia, and they're playing a uh, a game called uh, Jiu Lian yeah. Huan. It's a kind of game with interlinking metal rings. Yeah, the literal Chinese name is nine linked rings. Um, yes, and yes. so that gives you a, a kind of sense of what type of game this is. You posted a picture of what it of what it looks like on on Twitter, uh, so you can kind of see. Yeah, I found some pictures from the 1987 uh, TV series that I've mentioned a few times on, on the podcast. I highly recommend it, uh, and and they have some really nice representations of this game. I also want to point out here because we're spending a little time on the cosmological numbers that nine is a very significant number in this in this cosmological or numerological system. Where nine naturally is in a sense the biggest number if you, if you will mm -hmm. and it, it's often used to represent um the entirety of spaces and so here we are uh, inclined to think that uh lin daiyu and and jabao yu are playing a game but this game is kind of this a microcosm of the universe at large so they're kind of as game players they're I guess gaming is this, this uh, exercise of um, simulated agency. So they're they're almost like if you want to overinterpret this, they're almost playing God. Uh, they're trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Yeah. And the fact that this is the fact that this is a metal uh, game, and we've already associated metal with Shri Bao Chai, mm -hmm. then it's almost as if uh, maybe unconsciously they're trying to unravel the triangle. You know that. Um, that is developing. They're trying to disentangle it, and and they can't. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting image. I, yeah, I, I imagine it as this fiendishly difficult thing to to succeed at. Uh, you know, it's really quite a, a trial to get it done. I suppose it must be possible, and therein lies the the attraction of it as a game. But but it's far from easy. Um, I do I do think it's interesting just to compare what the different people were doing. So she. Jore's wife goes to see the Chun sisters. Two of them are playing Go. One of them is, I think it says Wan Shua, which is just to be like playing around uh, with with this nun. Right. Wang Shifeng is having sex with her husband. Yeah. And Bao Yu and Dai Yu are, yeah, they're playing this this nine ring, this kind of fiendishly complex nine ring game. And so whereas Go is relatively straightforward and playing around is, of course, extremely straightforward. They're they're sat doing you know something far more kind of complicated, far more far more challenging. And yet, every one of them is engaging in a, in a different kind of idleness. Yeah. So it's a kind of panoply of of leisure. Yeah. Which really, on one hand, it really lends the chapter a kind of a pleasant atmosphere toward the beginning, at least. 
right? Before they, at least before the second, the second movement mm -hmm. uh, that we're about to um, arrive upon. Yeah. And so I, I think this is a, a big part of this novel where it is a reflection on, on like, I guess, like the ethics of idleness mm -hmm. on how to, uh, how to use, you know, free time and what to do with yourself. What is there, which is kind of an interesting topic if you think about it. I mean, okay. Because there really are different ways to use your time. Yeah. Um, and if you have a lot of people, when they have free time or leisure time, they don't know what to do yeah. or, or they have a certain anxiety. Yeah. Um, they're unable to enjoy themselves or they engage in, um, in forms of excessive behavior that are ultimately um, self-destructive. Right. 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 Like it's drinking a lot and of fighting. problems. Yeah. Drinking, fighting drugs. Yeah. A lot of the problems that people um, face, at least on the individual level, are connected with uh, the choices they make with whatever free time they might manage to um, to seize upon. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a good point. And I, you know, I think um, at least among the the kind of noble characters, the upper the upper classes here, they are tremendously at ease with leisure. They all seem to be pretty comfortable doing whatever it is they're doing. Uh, while they're at ease, whereas someone like Joe Ray's wife is, you know, she she makes a kind of a hullabaloo, a song and dance about being kind of rushed off her feet when she's talking to her daughter. She's saying, you know, well, all this morning I had to spend this, you know, show, show this Granny Leo, whoever she is, all around the household, and that took up half my day. And now they give me these flowers and I've got to go and distribute them to everyone. But you feel like there's only a certain degree of sincerity or genuineness to her complaint. And maybe she's the sort of person who does enjoy always having something to do, always being occupied, I suppose. And actually, conversely, were she to be given utter leisure, much like these other characters, she uh, might not know what to do with herself. Even the nun is, in a sense, grappling with kind of her relationship to uh, production or the lack of production. Mm-hmm. Right, where even even being a nun is a way to to deal with the the problem of surplus time, surplus labor, surplus value, um, which is again back to the, the kind of key concerns that a theorist like Georgie Bataille is um, obsessed with, and so I'm, that's still in the back of my head. And so we've been really trying to figure out the meaning of these artificial flowers, and and how. Uh, I mean, even if we talk about the issue of um, a few of the representation of the, the lesser nuns or the lesser maids in this chapter, they have a kind of objectified appearance, which again is another form of kind of their own value in the household. It's not simply from the labor they perform, but also from the, the, the symbols uh, they represent. Uh, which is again related to you know why do we appreciate the flower? Is it for purely its its decorative value, or is it mm -hmm. is it kind of um, a symbol that connects to connects to power or connects to the ability to abstain from certain tarnishing acts? And this is going to be really important when um, Jia Baoyu meets Qin Zhong in a moment, yep. where it appears based on the way uh, the author represents their interaction that um, part of Jia Baoyu's uh, appeal to Qin Zhong is his, not only that he has um, a nice appearance, very fine dress, but he's also accompanied by, you know, a bevy of beautiful um, waitstaff. Yep. Those are the flowers that even he, you know, as a, uh, as a, a male character, he's still kind of adorned in a sense. Um, so even though he didn't receive a flower naturally, he's still very much yeah. defined relative to these, these symbols. So maybe on that note, we can turn to the next grand movement of this chapter. Yeah, so the second section. Just, just one final thing before we go. You, you mentioned this before, but as we said, there's this passing reference in the kind of bustle of the day to where Jore's wife sees her daughter and the daughter says that her husband, Long Zixing, has gone into this trouble. And right at the end of this first half of the chapter, Jore's wife is thinking about it. And she thinks that basically you can rely on the, the kind of wealth and influence of the, uh, the Jia clan. And in, in the Hawks translation, it says, a word to Shifong in the evening. 
and it would be yeah. as good as settled. And yeah, that's that's about right. It's it's um it's presented as I think this quite minor thing in this chapter, but as we'll see, what it it, it does go on to be a, a matter of some great significance. Correct. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and so it's kind of it reminded me of something uh, in Macbeth. There's a, a similar understating, overstating of uh, significant events. So, so in Macbeth, when Macbeth kills King Duncan, he comes out of the bedroom with all of this blood on his hands, and he's in this state of great sort of anxiety and shock. And his wife, Lady Macbeth, says she washes his hands. She says, "There, a little water, like." cleanses us off this deed or something along those lines but the the point is that it's a little water and then much later in the story when she is kind of racked with uh guilt over having done this uh she starts hallucinating that she has blood on her hands um and she tries to kind of she's endlessly washing her hands because there's this hallucinated blood on it and she returns there's this kind of echo of that earlier statement where she says you know all of the perfume in arabia could not erase this stain something along those lines and and so there's the kind of mirroring of this early very initial trivializing or dismissal of this great terrible thing uh, and then the later realization of how big and significant it is and i think we're seeing something similar here where jore's wife thinks of it just a word to shifong and it would be as good as settled and we're going to discover that probably many words maybe of no use anyway i just it was something that that kind of cropped up that struck me as a kind of neat little parallel uh, between two different pieces i mean it's interesting that you would use the example of the the hand and the the question mm-hmm. of uh what you can and cannot uh, remove from the hand because i was thinking yeah. um in terms of aesthetics uh w- one of the classic questions is or or in terms of uh like a philosophy of beauty a question that, that it kind of emerges is when you see what's con- considered um, traditionally to be a beautiful hand, it's not mm-hmm. entirely clear whether you're attracted to the positive properties of the hand or whether it's, again, that would be what Pattaya would refer to as the, the maybe the immediate appearance of the hand. But there's also yep. kind of a, a symbolic uh, property to that appearance where the uh, a soft hand... Um, is one that has been able, has had the power to abstain from, from you know, meaningful labor of, of various kinds, has been able to uh, avoid the nitty gritty of uh, getting your hands dirty in, yep. in manual labor or in, you know, in a kind of uh, defiling act up to and including uh, committing murder. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's the difference between the, merely like aesthetic appearance uh in its own right and the the sort of symbolic significance of that aesthetic right um, and it's hard yes, really to figure you. out what's what's what even with something as simple as a flower which we I, I think we think we know what a flower why it appeals to us and why it is this universal symbol i think a lot of um a lot of theorists would simply pass over the question but if you actually reflect upon it, it's not clear at all, actually. Um, it's a bit mysterious. Um, and there's a lot mm-hmm. going on. And it's even hard to properly formulate the, um, the underlying dynamics. And that applies, I, I think, to a lot of what's happening in this chapter. But I, I think it's good, actually, because the, the very fact that it is enigmatic, that it is elusive, it gives it a kind of um, almost like a secular uh transcendence where we, we were able to return to this material over and over again because our minds can't fully figure out what's happening that we we haven't even if we reread the stone you know again and again maybe we won't be able to fully emerge from the maze of its um systems of meaning mm-hmm. um so yeah let's let's move on to the second <laughs> yeah, the second yeah, yeah, part. yeah sorry for that short no, diversion no, that was great yeah. <laughs> yeah so in the second half as we mentioned before uh, Wang Xufeng is invited next door to the Ningguo mansion to spend the day. And as she is preparing to leave, uh, Jia Baoyu decides he wants to come with her. Right. Uh, and they spend the day together, basically, uh, meeting, hanging out with the neighbors. Um, what, what did you kind of make of this section? There are a lot of details in here that I, I didn't uh, 
everything seems significant. It's all really interesting. There's a there's some great mm-hmm. uh Wang Chifeng has some really great lines. She has a uh kind of a foul mouth. Yeah. Um and I've been thinking a lot about how that corresponds with her personality, her her like spiciness, you know, because again, she is the phoenix yeah. and so she's associated with fire. And so she's mm-hmm. going to be a bit fiery in speech and in act. Yeah, and and you know her 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 name, Xi Feng, is not necessarily a, a very feminine one. There is something slightly, and I have seen you know commentators touch on this. There's actually like a, a slight kind of masculinity or maleness to her name, and that's borne out, I suppose, in the fact that in much of her behavior, she is not kind of shy and reserved and and kind of gentle uh, or any of those sort of you know quite kind of traditional female traits she is very forthright and yeah is very kind of strong-willed and can very much hold her own she's quite kind of witty and sharp you know the freudian term for her would be she's anal sadistic (laughs) Uh, she's like very much like i think you might need to unpack that a bit uh, where I mean, she she has she conforms to a lot of rules. She believes in hierarchy. She wants control of everything. She micromanages, and yeah, yeah, she she is. We see in this uh, chapter the first glimpse of her attitude toward um, ritual, but also hierarchy. Okay, were we to simplify the the, the dynamics of um, the second part but also maybe the society as a whole mm-hmm. i think there's a, a kind of a, a fundamental divide between like hierarchies in terms of power and position and what could be termed ritual hierarchies or con- quote-unquote confucian hierarchies which are based in large part on age uh but also maybe gender and also um like family relation like father to son um, yeah. and I, I think it's, maybe it's a part of, um, of, uh, of Wang Shifeng's character that I think she's able to, um, abide by ritual forms to the extent that they don't conflict with forms of power and her, her need mm-hmm. to manage power and to be in control and, and in a position of authority. Which is again yeah. connected to this like quote unquote anal sadistic personality type, and so we're going to see this a lot in this section. And I want to really emphasize the the contrast between her attitude toward uh, Liu Lao Lao in the last chapter and yep. her attitude attitude toward um, Big Zhao in this chapter, because yeah. I, I think it's it's two instances in which um, a subordinate figure uh is interacting with her both of whom are in some sense breaking protocol in terms of um the kind of yes the extent of their request but because mm-hmm. um granny leo is able to do so uh in, in a certain way that doesn't like overtly uh supersede uh her authority she kind of is able to um, work with uh, Wang Shifeng much better than Big Zhao, Zhao who yeah, yeah. actually doesn't actually he doesn't request anything of the household, but his words mm-hmm. are so his his actions are so like symbolically excessive that he, mm-hmm. he, his his very life is um is threatened in the end. One of the things that really interests me about this section, you just touched on um the way that Wang Shifeng addresses her social inferiors so granny liu on one hand in the previous chapter and uh jiao da big jiao old jiao um later in this chapter but what's really interesting to me is the way that she addresses her peers um you know her social equivalents here um because it's really really fascinating how rude they are to each other and how kind of vulgar i, I, I mean they do it in a in a way that is understood to be playful and non-serious. And it's therefore just a kind of, it's banter, it's a sort of witty repartee, but it is really fascinating because it's not kind of very like fine, elegant speech at all. 
you know, they are, they're like, they're insulting each other in a playful way. But, but yeah, they're saying things that if said in seriousness would be, you know, really quite rude. So it's really interesting to me to see um, in this passage. So what happens first is we discover that uh, Qin Shi, one of the women of the, of the household, her brother, Qin Zhong, is staying, and he's a boy of about the same age as uh, Jia Baoyu. So Jia Baoyu wants to go off and meet him. But Wang Xifeng says, no, I want to meet him, bring him in here. And initially, the members of the Ning household are quite kind of reluctant, and they say, oh, no, 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 you don't, you know, you don't want to meet him, he's, he's nothing special. And they use kind of quite interesting language to to kind of say why you don't want to meet him. You know, they the words specifically that Qin Shi says are "bi buda zaman jia de de hai zi hu da hai shuai de guan le," which is to say, our children or the children of our household cannot compare to yours. You know, i bao yu, they have the manners of savages or or you know barbarous people something along those lines it's this very kind of like i guess like overblown a hyperbolic way of talking about themselves you know he go, she goes on to say that you're you know the children of your household are all very kind of elegant and refined whereas ours are just little terrace that sort of thing anyway while shifeng continues to push the point and the you know members of the Ning household continue to sort of like politely refuse in a playful way, and Wang Xifeng eventually makes a show of losing her temper, and I think this is is quite kind of funny as a an example of the thing that I was talking about of them talking you know in quite a sort of like rude way to each other. So she says in the in the Hawks translation, she says fiddlestick said Wang said Xifeng. I don't care if he's a three-faced wonder with eight arms. I still want to see him. Stop farting about and bring him in or I'll box your ears. Which is a relatively polite way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> um, the words she says are, the, the important bit is, <laughs> so, so, which is kind of split up into two parts there, is uh, literally to fart. But it, uh, in 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 the more like symbolic or metaphorical senses, is uh, oh, just figurative sense is just to talk rubbish. Or, or, or but it's rooted in that. It's kind of don't give me any crap. And the ni nyang bit in the middle, again, it, it, the literal sense nyang is a, is a is kind of a girl maiden woman. But but really nyang here is um, is rooted in that. It's it's. It's not quite equivalent to say um, the F word in English, but it's so nyang can be like mother. So it's you know any pejorative term involving mother, you know, is 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 uh, is obviously intended to be a bit offensive. So she's saying, <laughs> don't you know, don't give me any effing crap. I want to see the guy, you know. And if you don't bring him in, Hawks says I'll box your ears. You know, I'll, I'll punch you on the ear. Um, but she actually says, Dani Dun So I'll actually, you know, I'll give you a smack in the mouth, uh, which is which to me is somehow even more aggressive. And so I mean this is this is, you know, the 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 matriarch in waiting of one of the great households of China. And you know, she's talking like she's uh had twelve pints of beer and is trying to get someone to fight her almost, you know. <laughs> is um Yeah, I mean She's spicy. This is this is she's bringing the spice. She's bringing the heat. Yeah. We should probably mention that. So, uh, Chin Shi. This is the same Chin Ching from Chapter Five, mm-hmm. whose bed Jabao Yu slept in, and he had his first um, uh, special mm-hmm. dream. And so, what's what's kind of remarkable here is when when they finally bring um, bring the kid out. There, there's a there's a kind of another. A, a classic mm-hmm. moment, maybe even somewhat comparable to when uh, Jabao Yu first meets Lin yeah. Yu, where he he, has, he takes a moment and he really um, perceives. Uh, in this case, he he perceives his, I guess, male mm-hmm. beauty. They perceive each other in a really interesting way that um, is indicative of a kind of mutual longing for what the other one has that they don't yeah. have, and so it's a really interesting scene it's very 
it felt really psychologically real and uh, convincing. How did you react to this? Have I skipped over anything you want to talk about? No, not at all. I think that that's a, I think it's a really good point. It's almost a love at first sight type thing uh, or something like that. It's They clearly both make a deep impression on each other. You know, right. in outline, what Jabao Yu thinks is, you know, this is real purity. You know, he comes from a poorer household than I do, but all of my nobility and aristocratic heirs are just a way of covering up the fact that, you know, we at our cause are corrupt and filthy and disgusting. And so he, in his nature, is good, uh, whereas I, in my nature, am bad. And all the fine clothes and, and, and fine perfumes and stuff are just a way to try to disguise that. And I have the Hawks quote here. Yeah. I think it would be uh, instructive yeah. To, yeah. To, for, for me to read it here. So Bao Yu is thinking, how perfect he is. Who would have believed there could be such perfection? Now that I have seen him, I know that I'm a pig wallowing in the mud, a mangy dog. Why? Why did I have to be born in this pretentious aristocratic household? Why couldn't I have been born in the family of some poor scholar or low-grade clerk? Then I could have been near him and got to know him, and my life would have been worth living. Though I am so much richer and more nobly born than he, what use are my fine clothes but to cover up the dead and rotten wood beneath? What use the luxuries I eat and drink but to fill the cesspit and dwell the stinking sewer of my inside? Oh, rank and riches, how you poison everything. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's extremely uh, hyperbolic, but it's really interesting. And it gets at a lot of these questions I, I think we've been trying to raise here. Yeah, I, I I think before we just like look at the, the the text itself, it's useful just to re have for reflection um, Qin Zhong's impression of him. Okay, yeah, for comparison. So, so Qin Zhong in turn thinks, no wonder my sister raves about him whenever his name is mentioned. Why did I have to be born in a poor, respectable family? How I should have liked to get to know him, to have shared moments of warmth and affection with him, but it was not to be. So his is much shorter, but you can see as a kind of comparable feeling. They they each have a you know grass is greener feeling about the other. <laughs> there's there's one point in the in the Baoyu's impression section that is kind of oddly sort of prophetic to me, and it's kind of glossed over slightly in the Hawks. He says, uh, you know, why couldn't I have been born into the family of some poor scholar? Then I could have been near him and got to know him, and my life would have been worth living. The life worth living point in the Chinese is yet, yeah, buang sheng le yi shi. And that's literally, and in doing so, not have wasted my life is is something closer to the the, the actual Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this kind of harks back to one of the poems in the song cycle in chapter five, which is called literally a, a life wasted. So, zhong shen wu. And so inadvertently here, Bao Yu is signaling, I suppose, that his life is going to be one which is in some ways wasted not for the reasons he thinks here in 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 you know in not having to got to know Qin Zhong much sooner but because he ends up married to Xue Baochai but his heart still belongs to Lin Daiyu you know and, right. and and he's kind of torn between them definitely that's really interesting i hadn't thought about that but there is something prophetic about this this mm -hmm. passage where it, it is it's transcending the moment. It's not simply referring to, it, it seems to be referencing other things. We see here a lot of the images that we are familiar with. Before we had um, the distinction between water and femininity being good and masculinity and mud being mm -hmm. bad. Um, and so here, I guess in the sight of this um, unadorned, but I guess... Um, beautiful boy in some in some capacity mm -hmm. uh he feels inadequate he feels um dirty like a pig or or a, a dog wallowing in mud and you can kind of see sometimes where a lot of adornment this is again i i think too much about aesthetics i guess a lot of adornment it's really walking the line between ornamentation in a positive sense mm -hmm. as as in positively uh accentuating and embellishing 
an ornamentation in a gaudy, cheap sense where you're literally just taking these excremental objects and you're just covering yourself with them. And maybe that even explains um, Sri Bao Chai's refusal to take the flower, distancing herself from the, the, the fake flowers. Yeah. Where she can kind of perceive the, you know, the roots of the flower, even though artificial is rooted in this kind of cheap excess. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah which again has sometimes a class character to it when the forms of appearance that people who were once poor and then they become wealthy their conception of wealth and of displaying wealth is very different than had you been um, born into wealth and then you have a whole different ascetic system even if it is one yeah one big dialectic yeah that's like uh, it you know in in um modern china there's like because you have seen this great increase in in wealth in such a short period of time you have a very mm -hmm. clear uh it's almost a kind of stereotype the idea of like the poor family done well who've done well for themselves so you know there are so many wealthy people in china who came from very very poor backgrounds much of their i suppose behavior and spending patterns is is often uh made the subject i suppose of uh criticism or satire maybe or just mockery generally so you have for example the notion of the um tool hao right which is like tool being kind of like mud soil and how being uh something like royalty or or, or like magnificence mm. so these are yeah that, that kind of thing you know like peasant families who or you know, people who once upon a time were were, were peasantry or, or or very kind of low of very low social class, doing really well for themselves and becoming well off. But there's the kind of inability to shake off that, uh, or an inability to adjust to this new social milieu in which they find themselves. And I mean, yeah, that type of thing is absolutely true as much in in you know in the West with the idea of you know someone being kind of nouveau riche or or kind of parvenu. They have. Even if you become wealthy, you're sneered at by people who have been wealthy for a long time, right? You don't know the the proper like symbols and signals by yeah. which to express your wealth. Yeah, uh, and so it becomes yeah a, a very much a Great Gatsby kind of um, old egg, new egg. Oh, definitely. Kind of, um, yeah, unbroachable divide. I would say that um, on a certain level, this is a a classic case of you know the grass is greener on the other side longing for what you don't have but the author does indicate that there is a certain truth to um Bao Yu's sudden uh, embarrassment in, in that there is a superficiality to why uh Qin Zhong immediately respects him because the author says Qin Zhong struck by Bao Yu's rare good looks and princely bearing and yep. then and even more perhaps by the golden coronet and embroidered clothing and the train of pretty maids and handsome pages who attend him. Yeah. And so I guess it's hard to say, even though Bao Yu isn't um, nouveau riche in the sense that we're describing it. I mean, this is, this is again, a pre-modern novel. And so you could argue that, you know, if you want to take a, a strict materialist um, perspective, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the forces of production have, hadn't developed to the extent where conspicuous consumption would be as abstract as it is nowadays where okay. you can you can you can walk down the street and you can see bill gates and he'll be wearing the same clothing as you even though his education and the education of his entire family is more uh is like a, a million times more extensive and even though he has all these forms of power and political influence that um are unimaginable to yeah. even someone of, of ordinary or even of middle class standing yeah 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 and so the, the there still is this conspicuous consumption, but it's become extremely abstract. Whereas at this point in time, we still have you know elites wearing gold and uh, displaying wealth in a more direct fashion. Maybe yeah, it's much much more it's much more immediate and it's much more concrete. Exactly. So this is really interesting to see this. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that I would connect. You know, Bao Yu's feeling like stinking and dirty and, and filthy mm -hmm. with what happens later on to uh, to Big Big Zhao. Yeah. Who ends up, you know, as a consequence of having a filthy mouth, ends up yeah, in he, the mud. Um, and and with, with horse dung stuffed in his mouth. Right, which is which is a very much to return to Bataille, this is a real base materialism. So we're finally 
we started off with these um, these representations of flowers, these symbols of symbols, effectively. And now we're seeing that even the symbols of symbols have their roots in uh, concrete forms of power. And so maybe we should talk about what happens. Okay, so so just just in between, uh, we should just mention that Jia Baoyu and Qin Zhong become good friends. One of the things that they resolve to do is is uh, they both think that they they want to get kind of better education and they decide that they should get some kind of tutor get their families to pay for a tutor and the two of them can study together and, and kind of learn together that was interesting in in a purely anthropological sense i was imagining this probably was a real practice and it shows you that education we've seen a lot of really kind of ad hoc educational schemes in this in this novel even wealthy individuals are frequently switching tutors, changing yep. platforms, moving from one place to another. Yeah, and they'll just they just find anyone anyone around who can teach. You know, uh, any any yeah. you know halfway educated intellectual. Oh, you'll do. Teach my teach my son. Teach my daughter. It feels incredibly haphazard. Um, and yep. so, uh, Qin Zhong hasn't had a, a tutor for a while. He wants one. They're gonna maybe try to um, arrange. They both they have a scheme basically. Each of them are going to pressure their parents to uh, allow them to attend this school, which is specifically dedicated toward um, their. Again, it's organized around these kinship groups. In no ways is there any indication of any kind of like public system. The the social um, form here that's doing the education is are these extended family units that we've talked a yep. little bit about, um, which is really interesting. And so we're, I guess we're going to see in the upcoming chapters whether this materializes or not. Um, yep. There's, But it's very clear that they like each other a lot and, and they want to be friends. Um, yep. We've seen in general that uh, Bao Yu is highly likable, kind of a sensitive young boy uh, yeah. who is a, little, a, a bit um, moody. He doesn't have the same kind of – he hasn't at least demonstrated the same kind of uh, – I guess, like sadistic edge that we see in someone like Wang Shifang. And so it's interesting. So it gets towards the end of the day and it's grown dark outside. So they decide that, you know, one of the servants should chaperone the party back to the Zhongguo mansion because they're in the, the Ningguo mansion, which is just next door, but presumably there's some distance to travel between them. And it transpires that the servant that's been asked to accompany them is uh, somebody called Big Jiao in Chinese, Jiao Da. And so this is our first introduction to him. Uh, he is a, a member of the household and it seems was very, very close with the grandfather of the, of the Ning branch. And at various times earlier in his life, he, um, this character, Jiao Da, Big Jiao, he went with him uh, on battle campaigns and he, you know, he saved him by pulling him out from under a heap of corpses and carrying him to safety on his back. I might just read the hawks here because it's quite good. Yeah, definitely. You don't know Big Zhao, said Yul Shi. Even father couldn't do anything with him, let alone Jun. When he was young, he went with grandfather on three or four of his campaigns and once saved his life by pulling him from under a heap of corpses and carrying him to safety on his back. He went hungry himself and stole things for his master to eat. And once... When he had managed to get half a cupful of water, he gave it to his master and drank horse's urine himself. Because of these one or two acts of heroism, he was always given special treatment during grandfather's lifetime. So naturally, we don't like to upset him now. But basically, we see that despite having been given this special treatment when the grandfather was alive, he's now really just given over to drinking all the time. And basically, he's never really given anything to do around the house. And so... This, again, touches on the point you mentioned before about, about leisure. He's given essentially total leisure. He's not really expected to do any work. But in his case, it results in uh, a very negative reaction, right? He's obviously um, deeply resentful in, in various ways. It's unclear yeah. whether this resentment is entirely justified. It is clear mm. that I would characterize this as a kind of class antagonism that uh, yep. ordinarily is below the surface, but because he is taken to drinking um, and because he has his special status. On one hand, mm -hmm. he is extremely old, right? Yeah. And also he um, 
he has this history of of merit, mm-hmm. right? And so if, if we go back to this um, Confucian system, he's a little bit like a Liu Laolao in that yeah. he's of lower status, but because he has a, a, achieved a certain age, he's able to um, kind of transgress certain boundaries. Um, yeah. Whereas he doesn't want money, he uh, he, he has this desire to kind of to speak the truth and to kind of call the family out for what they have what they are and what they've become yeah and so he's you know he's he's dangerous for that reason you're right it's a very complex relationship he's a servant but he's one of one with merit and therefore of a special status he is old and so therefore deserving of a greater degree of respect. But he very much abuses uh, that respect. And you're right, absolutely, there's a class antagonism about it. In a household such as this, where there's such a clear distinction between the kind of aristocratic members of the household who live a life of ease and leisure and appear to do nothing much of kind of material value. Uh, And on the other hand, you have the servants who work very hard all the time uh, and are, you know, sometimes mistreated, uh, but certainly, you know, even when they're treated well, live a much harder life than than their kind of social superiors. It's entirely natural that uh, antagonism, you know, would would kind of arise. But you're right, so much of the time it's it's buried beneath the surface. And here is because of, uh, you know, Big Zhao's special position and because he's been drinking it kind of surfaces and so i was thinking why is this part connected with the uh this whole issue of delivering the flowers and what i was thinking here and this might uh seem crazy to you but Mm -hmm. in a way it's almost as if big Zhao kind of nourished the grandfather of the ning household in the same way and this will sound crazy maybe that jabao yu as the stone nourished Lin Dayu, where he was like okay. very very attentive to his needs. He even even Big Zhao, he even waters in a sense, grandfather Jia. Yeah, by know, giving him yeah, giving him this half cup full of giving water. Giving him the, the final cup full of water, you know, just enough yeah. to allow this there's a sense really that he like almost gave birth to this whole branch of the family. And yeah. so he's in this really strange position because he's stuck between these class positions where on one hand he's a lower class, but he's done this meritorious act. He's almost done this um, procreative act, which is very strange and interesting. But he's still on the bottom. He's still in the mud. And at the very end, you know, he talks so much that they, uh, you know, the other servants, they actually take the horse manure and shove it in his mouth in order to, um, to get him to Silence stop him. talking. Right, yeah. which is which is again this connection between filth and mud, but it's also this weird like that's the, that's also the place where things are nourished. And even at this yeah. time, you would use something like excrement as a kind of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, all yeah. these weird symbolic uh, correspondences, I, I think. Yeah, well, I think there's also a or just or there. Yeah, it's really, well, there's know. a symbolic importance that he has horse dung shoved in his mouth because, as was revealed just a few paragraphs earlier he drank horse urine to allow his master to drink water. And so early in his life, nourishing the household, he drinks horse urine so his master can drink water. Late in his his life, after his master has died and he feels neglected by the household, his mouth is stuffed with horse dung to silence him because he's no longer kind of valued or welcome as a member of the household. Right. And Shifeng refers to his speech as drunken filth. And so these yeah. connections that we're making are very much present in the original um, mm-hmm. historical context. But they still, I mean, we will still in English today say, you know, that person has a filthy mouth in the same way that Feng Laza has a spicy mouth. And there yeah. really are these this whole system of connections, um, mm-hmm. some of which are historically rooted, but a lot of these are weirdly almost universal. And that's kind of the question that's in the back of my head, like, why? Like, why does this make so much sense, even though so much time has passed and this yeah, is a different yeah. culture with a, a completely I I, separate language system? I do understand. Um, I think it's true. Um, so I think we should touch on some of the things that uh, Big Jao says, because they're yes, important yes, yes. in their own right, aside from any symbolic significance. Mm-hmm. So first, when he's speaking to the the steward of the household, what, what, what has happened is 
uh, Big Jail never gets any work. Uh, and he resents that other servants are given what he thinks of as kind of like plum jobs, good jobs. Uh, and then the only time they come around to ask him to do anything is to go and walk someone home in the dark. And incensed by this, he calls the steward, in the Hawks translation, a mean, rotten bugger. But in the Chinese original, he calls him Mei Liang Xin, the Wang Ba Gaozi. So Mei Liang Xin means one without conscience, right? Liang Xin is, is, is kind of something like a conscience, and Mei means without not having. Wang Ba Gaozi is, um, well, it's, yes, it's an insult, isn't it? And it's clearly meant to be insulting. I interpreted it as, well, I mean, something perhaps like bastard, but there's a vague suggestion of cuckoldry in it, I think, cuckoldry, you know? Mm. And I think that that's interesting because it finds its echo later in the section. Yeah. Um, so his ranting and raving goes on, and Jia Rong, who's kind of the man of the household, as it were, attempts to you know get involved and get him to stop all this ranting and raving. I, again, I'll read from the Hawks. A big Jia was having none of this. Oh, little wrong, is it? Don't you become the big master stuff with me, Sonny boy. Never mind a little bit of a kid like you. Even your daddy and your granddaddy don't dare to try any funny stuff with old Jiao. And um, that's fairly, you know, true to the text. But there's one phrase that I think should be picked out here. So he says, never mind you, neither your father nor your grandfather. Then the Chinese phrase here is, ye bu gan he jiao da ting yao zi na. So, they also did not dare to do this thing, Ting Yaozi, with me, with Jiao Da. So what does Ting Yaozi mean? Well, Yao, Yao is the waste, right? And Ting is to sort of like, to straighten up, to, to stand, stand straight. So it's to kind of straighten out your waist, as it were. And, and so I wasn't sure whether this was in a literal sense of kind of almost like squaring up chest to chest. So they don't dare to square up to me. What, what do you, anyway, tell me what you, kind of, you, you sort of made of this. Um, this whole altercation? I really wanted to, I'm kind of reading along right now and debating which parts we should maybe highlight. And so he is, you know, indignant, especially when, uh, when Jarong, who's a younger man, tries to uh, assert his authority over him. So it's again, yeah. there are these conflicting forms where you have on one hand, someone who's younger than you, but they're of higher social status. Mm -hmm. that's, that's often the time where there's going to be conflict. There is almost an intuitive sense in which it is ridiculous when someone who's younger than you um, speaks to you from a position of authority, right? Yeah. Especially when the age gap is so um, dramatic. And so that really sets him off. And so th there really is one critical line where, and this is actually the line that Jabao Yu asks, what does he mean by that? This is right after he says, you know, he, he's, he's really going off now, you know. Who would ever believe the old master could spawn this filthy lot of animals? Yeah. Which is interesting because just a moment ago, Jabao Yu was perceiving himself as a kind of filthy animal. And here we have a, an unadorned servant with unadorned language saying the same thing. Uh, this is actually a really good, it's an interesting phrase. So he says literally, So you collective Ibata is like a handful, basically. You handful of zajong is like, it literally means uh, assorted types of things, but really it means something like bastards or mongrels. So, I mean, he's really going for them here. You know, you yeah. like implying that their, you know, their forebears, their predecessors were were great, and somehow they've spawned this 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 litter of bastards of mongrels of runts you know which is more or less what Lung Zixing was insinuating back in chapter uh, two I believe right yeah with Jiayu Chuan at the cafe beside mm -hmm. the dilapidated monastery and so this kind of is the talk of the town in some sense yeah but then he goes on and he says up to their dirty tricks every day I know father-in-law pokes in the ashes auntie has it off with nevi do you think i don't know what you're all up to oh we hide our broken arm in the sleeve but you don't fool me 
Yeah. There's a really critical detail there uh, hidden in the, the euphemistic expression, father-in-law pokes in the ashes. Literally, uh, those who, who poke around in the ashes. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a highly euphemistic way of referring to specifically incest between father-in-law and daughter-in-law. Yeah, to scrape in the ashes. And then uh, Yang Xiao Shuzi. Xiao Shuzi is your husband's younger brother. And so Yang here is literally it's the word you use to like raise to raise a child, right? But I think here it also is a euphemistic uh, expression for perhaps uh, interfering with, we might say. But but yeah, absolutely. And and, and then the, the, the final phrase that he uses about hiding the broken arm in the sleeve. Is a is a very good one. I, I don't actually know what the origin of this phrase is, but we can we can understand what he's driving that, which is if you're wearing a long sleeve and perhaps a rather kind of loose and baggy one, you would be able to disguise the fact that the arm inside the sleeve is broken. And in a similar way, in a metaphoric sense, the family by dressing itself up in you know the grand airs of nobility are able to occlude the fact that they uh, are engaged in you know, kind of contemptible behaviors of all kinds. I'd say overall, this is a great chapter. It's it's almost like perfectly composed. Uh, yeah. It really is a standalone dream. I, I think maybe were I to, um, to take one chapter and to present it to somebody uh, like as an introduction to the novel, mm-hmm. you know, chapter five would be too much. There's just too much going on there. Um, yeah. The first chapter, it's completely kind of lost in the mythology. So you don't really get yeah. the full flavor for the novel. But maybe this would be the perfect... This is a good one, isn't it? Because it's, yeah, it's it's um, it's got a lot going on. It, it gives you a good cross-section of the whole. So where they leave it is, eventually other servants manage to get uh, old Zhao tied up. And they stuff his mouth with um, mud and... Uh, um, yeah, horse dung um, to get him to stop talking. And they're considering killing him the next day, which is again yeah. speaks to this question of whether they're all um, slaves in some sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It definitely shows the difference in the, the value of, of, uh, of life. Um, as they're leaving, Bao Yu turns to Wang Xifeng and asks her, mm. what did he mean by poking around in the ashes, right? So, so the hawks reads Feng. What did he mean when he said, father-in-law pokes in the ashes? And she replies, hold your tongue. <laughs> and she tells him off for even asking and says, you know, just you wait till I tell your mother, etc., etc." So, you know, for Jiabaoyu, it's just a sort of innocent question. What was he, what did he mean when he said that? But for Wang Xifeng, this is a really deeply embarrassing uh, kind of exposure of these family secrets, which are kind of best kept hidden. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing that her personality can't can't handle as well. She needs order. She needs everything to be in its place. And this is like the epitome of of disorder. And it's referencing the family's own sexual disorder. Their their you know their dark discourse, their incestuous yeah. Uh, yeah activities. Yeah, absolutely. So that's basically the end of the chapter. I guess um, final thoughts. Um, I do kind of agree with you that this is a good. It's a good. Um, it's a kind of exciting, interesting chapter in its own right. It gives you that broad cross-section of the household and all the various different things that go on. I'm not really sure what else to add. I think we kind of covered, covered so much, you know, when talking about it. It'll be interesting to see what kind of, whether a certain cyclical rhythm emerges. I mentioned before, uh, Zhang Xinger kind of postulates these um, recurring sequences loosely based on the trigrams which I kind of scoffed at a little bit. But I, I, I do wonder whether um, as we proceed, we're going to see uh, kind of recurring events, recurring patterns of events. And I, I'm interested to see what happens in that regard. What does the next chapter say will happen? Very helpfully, they always have those pairs uh, of these kind of subtitles at the top explaining what's going on. Chapter 8. Jabao Yu is allowed to see the strangely corresponding golden locket and Shri Chai has a predestined encounter with the magic jade. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Yeah. And so thanks everyone for listening. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at uh, Rereading Stone. There's a Facebook page, Facebook 
dot com slash rereading the stone. Um, I recently started a Reddit account, um, even though my first one was shadow banned for reasons mysterious to me. <laughs> so if you go yep. on if you go on Reddit uh, slash r slash rereading the stone, uh, I'm gonna try to get some some activity up and going there. There's been some really good comments on the Facebook page, and yeah, you, you can you can message us in various ways. Always excited to hear that this podcast has been interesting or useful or educational or enlightening yeah. in some way or another. So it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great. And I mean, feel free to disagree. You know, I, uh, I appreciate when yeah. we get people, you know, people messaging to say, you know, I like what you said on this, but I, I think actually, you know, this, that, or the next thing, uh, it's, it's really, really great to get different people's opinions. Yeah, definitely. This has been a, all of these episodes have been improvisational. I've tried to edit out things that I know are definitively wrong. Uh, <laughs> there's always going to be a lot of room for uh, difference of opinion. And, and a novel this uh, this big and this you know distant from us, uh, mm. it's really going to need. It's going to take a whole kind of global community for us to to really make sense of it. And so, yeah, our expertise uh, is contingent upon the. Uh, the quality and the quantity of um, our interaction with the greater uh, reading community. Oh yeah, it's definitely crowdsourced. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, thanks for listening, and uh, and see you next time for the next installation of Rereading the Stone. Thanks, everybody. Bye.